In the name of God, most merciful, ever merciful. May God's peace and blessings be upon his holy prophet Muhammad and the purified members of his household and progeny. Allahumma salli ala Muhammad wa ali Muhammad wa ajil farajahum. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh to uh, all of our viewers. And uh, welcome to this uh, new session that we had said we would have to continue the topic of uh, imama. Right now, the where we're at in the discussion on imama is that we are about to prove that imama actually was an a divine appointment that the person chosen to be the imam for this ummah, the ummah of the Holy Prophet, the people of the Prophet and therefore the rest of humanity had to be someone that was divinely appointed, one, and two, that the divine appointment actually took place. That's what we're trying to establish uh, today, inshallah, that it was by, it needs to be by divine appointment and that the divine appointment was actually, actually did occur. So let's start with a quick recap of what we covered until now. The first point is that I think it's clear by now that the topic of imama is one of the topics that has been the most researched, the most written about, the most commented on, and the most controversial in Islamic theology. Nothing else has caused as much, uh, let's say, disagreement, as much controversy, as much difference as the topic of imama has. And truth be told, uh, depending on the answers that you reach on the topic of imama, and depending on your position with regards to the topic of imama, you are going to have, you're going to basically take a different path in every other aspect of your religion. And that's why if someone wants to be really, you know, uh, accurate and objective and scientific and methodological in their understanding of their belief system, you know, the typical way of understanding our belief system is to say, you know, the, there are five uh, pillars to uh, our religion, five theological pillars, five belief pillars, uh, belief and uh, the existence of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and belief in his justice and we explained why belief in divine justice became uh, a belief on its own a belief pillar on its own and then we have the belief in prophethood that's a third and then belief in imama as another pillar fourth and then we have belief in the afterlife this is the classic version of presenting the aqaid presenting the beliefs and sometimes they are reduced to three. They say the belief system is actually built on three pillars, belief in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, belief in prophethood, and belief in the afterlife. And then secondary, uh, there are secondary beliefs in those. And those two beliefs that are secondary are belief in the imamah and belief in the afterlife. Now, the if we want to be very accurate and we want to be objective in the manner in which we understand the imam if you believe that the imam is the person that is appointed by allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and that you are taking your religion from them to get to the teachings of the holy prophet and you're taking your religion from them to get to the teachings of the holy quran and you're taking your religion from them to get to the teachings related to the existence of allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and his attributes and you're taking your teachings from the imam in order to understand the afterlife, then the main pillar of your faith system becomes the imam. It doesn't become, you know, all the others because you're going through the imam to get to all the others. Okay, so this is just kind of a quick remark that I think is, is worth making and keeping in mind and to really uh, understand the and appreciate the importance of this topic and the need for it to be properly understood. A second point that we said is that despite what a lot of people think, including sometimes, unfortunately, Shia themselves, who think that uh, the Shia believe that the Imam is someone that was appointed 
almost like a personal choice by the Holy Prophet We said the actual Shia belief is that the Imam, an Imam is someone who is appointed by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. He's not appointed by the Holy Prophet. The command of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala goes through the Holy Prophet to be explained to the people through the Holy Prophet, but the appointment itself is made by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And in addition to this, because this is someone chosen by Allah to represent religion and to represent God on earth and to continue the prophetic mission, then this has to be someone who is also infallible, like prophets are, and it has to be someone who is endowed with divine knowledge, like prophets are. And the reason for all of this, as we explained, is that we said religion, our religion, this Islam that of ours, is supposed to be a universal religion and an eternal religion. In other words, this is the faith, this is the belief system, this is the worldview that needs to be applied, accepted by all of humanity until the end of times. And then when we looked at the conditions in which the Holy Prophet lived and tried to communicate these teachings to humanity, we saw that he was not in a position to be able to make all of the teachings of religion in all of their applications and all of their details explicitly known to everyone who is to come until the end of times. And so Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala saw in his wisdom that this prophetic mission needs to be continued by 12 people who will come and who will make sure that the application of this religion, everything that was revealed by the Holy Prophet, the application of the Holy Quran needs to be shown to the people so that we learn the principles of understanding this religion and how it is to be applied until the end of times. The 23 years that were extremely eventful, that were extremely difficult for the Holy Prophet were not enough, and we went through those details, were not enough for the Holy Prophet to make all of those details of religion clear and explicitly known to everyone. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala chose to continue the cycle of prophethood that was sealed with the Holy Prophet, with a cycle of imamah, to render clear the application of this religion to day-to-day -to -day life for all, for humanity until the end of times. Okay? Now, to continue with the, the recap and where we were, in order for someone to play this role, they need to be able to uh, carry and have in them the same characteristics and the same traits that you find in prophets, so that they are really, truly able to guide people and to preserve this religion, so that you know that whenever they are doing something, you can rest assured that this actually represents religion. That when they are talking, when they are explaining, when they are teaching, that you can be 100% sure, you have a guarantee from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that these people, when they're talking, it actually matches what he wants. It actually matches religion. It actually matches the teachings of the Holy Prophet. And for this, they need to be infallible and they need to have divine knowledge. They have to have knowledge of the truth as Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala teaches it. Not as, you know, someone like me who can spend years and years studying religion and coming up with my own conclusions, which may always be open to being right or wrong. In their case, that's not the case. In their case, there is no right or wrong. It is always right. And I need to be, I need to be reassured that it's always going to be right for me to deal with them as an imam. Otherwise, they're just another scholar like everybody else. And their opinion is taken into consideration like every other scholar's opinion is taken into consideration. When we look at those claims that we have made, when we said that the Imam is someone who has infallibility, who is divinely appointed, who has divine knowledge, we saw that one, no one has ever claimed any such thing for anyone else. So let's start from the beginning. No one has ever claimed any such thing for anyone else at the time of Imam Ali السلام, the first of the Imam, and then ever after. So no one has made that claim about anyone else, that they are infallible, that they have divine knowledge, or that they are divinely appointed. And two, no one has made, and this to me is even more important and more dangerous as a claim, no one has made such a claim about themselves. No one has said, 
No one has said, you can ask me. No one has said, I am the representative of God on earth and I am infallible and I have divine knowledge and I am divinely appointed. No one has said that. And we went through multiple examples of some of the people who later became the leaders of the Islamic world. None of them has ever made any such claims. So the options that we have at the end, this topic of Imam as we're presenting it, there are only two options. Either you say the Imam was the Holy Prophet, or uh, either you say, sorry, either you say the Imam was Ali ibn Abi Talib salam, the only person making such a claim, Imam Ali salam, or you say there is no Imam, because there is no other alternative. This claim has not been made about anyone else, one, and this claim has not been made about someone about themselves before, after, during his imamah, and until today. So either you say he is the imam, if there is an imam, it is him, or there is no imam. Okay, these are the only two options. And this is an important point to keep in mind. And this, I need you to link this to a topic that we talked about earlier, which was the topic of properly defining your terms. When we discuss the topic of imama with someone, we have to first agree, what do you mean by imam? Because these are the criteria that I'm using for my imam. I'm using the criteria of someone who is divinely appointed, who has divine knowledge, and who is infallible. This is what I need for someone to be an imam in the sense that I am discussing. If the person that you want to uh, bring up and you want to discuss does not meet that criteria, then that person cannot be considered an imam in the sense that I need and in the sense that I'm looking for. Okay, so uh, this claim that there are people who others have said about them, that they're infallible, infallible, divinely appointed, and with divine knowledge, has to be agreed upon as a the meaning of what an imam is, one, and two, if this is agreed upon, then it's also agreed upon that this has not worked for anyone else. The claim has not been made about anyone else and no one has made such a claim about themselves. A question may arise that, for instance, what about the Imams that we find in other Madahib? It could be the Zaydis, it could be the Ismailis, it could be even the Sunnis who call some of their people Imams. No such claim has been made. Yes, they are referred to as an imam in the sense of a leader. Sometimes they say that this is the person that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wants as their imam, but that person cannot be considered infallible, nor are they considered divinely inspired, unless you leave our religion in the sense that you say these people are receiving revelation from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. But no such claims are made about them. Okay, so this is just to you know lay that to rest for now. So now we come back to our topic. Based on everything that we've said, this is a new, new content starting from this point on. Why do we need an appointment? Why are we saying that for someone to be an imam, they need to be divinely appointed? This is a topic that we talked about when, when we first talked about general prophethood. And we said, despite the fact that we have reason, our reason is not sufficient for us to determine who is the person that we're supposed to follow? In some cases, you know, you may have a situation where clearly this person is the prophet. No one compares, right? And so in that case, if that person tells you I'm a prophet, then it might become clear. But if they don't, they might just be a really good person. They're saintly. They're a really, really good person. But they're not a prophet in the sense that they have been given a mission and teachings from Allah to go and teach the rest of humanity. Okay, these are two different scenarios. <clears throat> so when we come to the status of imamah, the position of imamah, it is the exact same situation. There are a lot of people who may be extremely good. Saints, you know, people who have basically dedicated their entire lives in sincere worship of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, in good charitable actions and sacrifice towards uh, you know, others and helping others and this religion and, and so on and so forth. But this does not make of these people imam in the sense that this is someone with a divine mission that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has sent. So how do I know? I look at two people, they both look incredibly good. 
They both are amazing worshipers. They are saintly. They, it doesn't look like any of them performs any sins ever. So what allows me to say that this person is an imam and that person is not? This is the question, right? And we have many of those people in history. Look at a lot of the sons of the imams or their brothers. Look at Al-Abbas salam. If you see him and the way he lived, and who wouldn't say that he is an imam? Why wouldn't he be an imam? We don't know. We need Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to distinguish those ranks for us. Otherwise, from our perspective, when we look at those people, they are all incredible. They are all, you know, models to be followed in everything that they do. But this is the difference between a divinely appointed imam and someone else. And what we're talking about here is the divine appointment of the imam. Therefore, we need Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to tell us somehow that this person is your imam and this person is not your imam. And this is the reason why we need the appointment. Because when we look at the people, we have no way of knowing. When we talked about prophethood, we, we said the same thing. We said either someone is going to give you a prophecy, therefore it's a divine appointment. Either you're able to recognize it and the person makes a claim about themselves, or they bring about a miracle that proves their prophethood. And in the case of the imams, this is not the case. The imams do not bring prophethood uh, uh, miracles as prophets do. And there might be karamat, there might be graces and favors and things that happen, but they are not in the sense of proving the validity of their claim of religion, you know, bringing a religion or breaking a prophethood to humanity. Okay, so I think all of this is clear. So once we say that someone has been established by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, divinely appointed by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala as an imam, then this obviously means that they are also going to be carrying the same authority, having the same authority as we would find in a prophet. This authority that we refer to as hujjiyah. What did we mean by hujjiyah? We said it's someone that if you see them do something, then this is proof. Just them doing something is proof that you can do it, or maybe that you, even that you have to do it. Or if they tell you, you have to do something, that's proof. That's enough proof. Just their word is enough proof. They're doing something is enough proof. They're not doing something is enough proof. So they, in everything they do, and everything they say becomes a religious proof. So it's in this sense that we say they are an authority. They are your authority in religion. They are your source of religion, source of knowledge in religion. Okay, so that's what happens if someone is divinely appointed. If it were to be established about someone that they are divinely appointed. Now, a couple of last points related to this that I think are important to keep in mind. Because we said it's not possible for us to reach the conclusion about whether someone is an imam or not, and therefore we need divine appointment, and we don't live in a world where we have access to someone who can just tell us what God has said, that God has, for instance, appointed someone as an imam. The only way for us today to reach that, to reach that conclusion, to know that thing, is through textual evidence. So evidence in the text. We don't have a person that we can rely on. We have to go back to the sources, what was attributed to the Holy Prophet, what was said by the Holy Prophet, which makes us fall squarely into the field of hadith, ilm al-hadith, dirayat al-hadith, or ilm al-dirayat. And there are, I mean, if someone wants to really understand this topic in depth and understand all the narrations and be able to assess them and understand what has been said about them, then I would strongly recommend that they go and study ilm al-hadith. And in there, of course, this is a, a, a whole field where basically what is done by the scholars who study hadith, what you do in that field, is you look at a, a few things. First of all, you need to understand what the hadith itself says. The narration, the part that is narrated, that are, the part that is supposed to be quoted from the Holy Prophet, and of course it applies to the imams too, the part that is attributed to the Holy Prophet, what are the actual words that were said? Are these words eloquent enough and clear enough and without mistakes so that they are attrib attributable to the Holy Prophet or not? For instance, 
Does the meaning of what, what is being said, is it contradicted by anything else in religion or not? Is it contradicted by the whole Quran or not? Can we consider the meaning, the content of what is being said? Can we consider it valid and authentic or not? And then you also look at the people who are telling you that this hadith or that hadith was actually said by the Holy Prophet. You have to look at who reported it. Who says, now you're reading it in a book. Okay, who's the author of the book? Where did they take it from? Which book did they find it in? Who was their teacher? And then you go back to the time when all of this was being transmitted orally and in writing by the people all the way to the Holy Prophet. So then you ask, when the people heard it from the Holy Prophet, how many people heard it? How many people reported it? Were they trustworthy people? Were they known to be people who could actually learn the hadith by heart and not make mistakes when they repeated them? Did they write them down? For instance, we know in the case of some narrators, we're told that they started becoming forgetful when they got old. Some of them are known liars. Some of them, they only lie when the hadith doesn't suit their needs. Some of them, they just fabricate a hadith. Some of them, they don't report the hadith fully. They say only a part and leave a part out. Okay, we need to know which kind of narrator is it? The people reporting the hadith. How do we assess them? Okay, so that's a whole field. This is al rajal this is when you study those people. So how many people reported the hadith directly from the Holy Prophet? And then what about the second layer? Those people who came in the next generation, how many people heard it from them? And then how many people heard it from them? All the way down to the time when you can clearly say, and this is how the hadith actually got into the books. Okay. And then when I have the hadith today, can I actually trace it back all the way to the Prophet or are there times, are there periods of time when that hadith seems to have vanished? So maybe the hadith was actually fabricated or created by someone during that time. You see nothing, nothing, and then suddenly you have someone who says, oh, I heard the hadith from someone from the Holy Prophet. This was reported that the Holy Prophet said. Who reported it? Who said the Holy Prophet said? I need the full chain of narrators that is attested that I know this actually this is what they said. I know who they are all the way to the Prophet. So this is when you have to put all of this together. When every time someone says there's a hadith, this is what's supposed to go in your mind to know, is, this po is it possible that this hadith is maybe not exactly as it's being reported? Is it authentic or not? And this is the work of the specialists of Ilm al-Hadith and Ilm al-Rajal. This is what they do. Okay, and it's a very fascinating, big, exciting field, if anyone wants to get into that. So why am I saying all of this? It's because the moment you get into this topic, you have no choice but to also start digging into Ilm al-Hadith and Ilm al-Rajal so that you can actually assess for yourself, are these Hadith that are being reported and narrated, are they authentic or not? Or at least find people that you can rely on, you consider expert and trustworthy so that you know if they're saying this is authentic then it's authentic if it's not then it's not and so on and so forth now what i need when i look at anything coming down to me as a muslim what am i trying to establish bottom line is all i want to know is what is my religious duty as a follower of prophet muhammad what is my religious duty that's all I need. So if my religious duty at the end is I have a prophet who tells me this is what you're supposed to do or this is who you're supposed to follow, then that's the end of the story. That's all I need, right? This is all we're trying to establish. What is my religious duty as a follower of Prophet Muhammad For the rest of the lesson, we're going to go through a number of proofs, scriptural, let's call it, or textual proofs for the appointment of the imam. Now, our claim here is that each and every one of these proofs, of course, the Qur'anic proofs are Qur'anic, and then we have a hadith, narrations, traditions. Those, our claim, of course, is that these are all 100% authentic hadith. So someone might ask, and so that I'm answering the objection before we go in so that you don't ask it, someone might ask, well, if these are so, if these ahadith are so clear and they are so well known, then how come 
Muslim scholars don't just agree on all of this? How come they still reject Imam Ali's appointment as an Imam and then everything else that follows? What's the difference? Where are things going wrong? And in short, it's not that you do not have Sunni scholars who say that the hadith that we're going to use are not authentic. That's not the issue. The ahadith that we have, if you go through any of the reliable big scholars' works, they're going to say these hadith exist and they're authentic ahadith. That's not the issue. They can only claim two things which are often claimed about some hadith. Sometimes it's one claim, sometimes the other, sometimes both claims about the same hadith. In some cases, they interpret the hadith differently. That happens. And so it's up to you to see, is it logical? Do these hadith can they actually be interpreted in any other way or is it really stretching it to interpret it in any other way when things are so clear? That's one. And the second way that they can get away with not ending up believing in the same thing is simply by saying that the hadith is not mutawatir. So what do we mean by mutawatir? And this is, you know, you're being now exposed a little bit to ilm al-hadith because we need these tools. For a hadith to be mutawatir, it basically means that you're going to be able to accept it because there is such a high likelihood that it was reported authentically from the Holy Prophet that it doesn't make sense to not consider it authentic. Example, the Holy Prophet says something and you have, you know, let's say eight people. Take an example of something happening. Right now someone tells you an accident just happened in the street. Two cars collided with each other. Okay, let's take just something neutral like that. If, some, if one person comes and tells you, you might say, yeah, the, the, there is good likelihood. It's someone you trust. It looks like they're telling the truth. So there's good likelihood that they are telling the truth and this actually happened the way it did. But there's always a possibility that they're misunderstanding, misinterpreting, they did not see the whole thing. Fine. What if two people told you? Two independent people come. You talk to one person and then you talk to another and they both saw from different angles what just happened. What if you have five? What if you have 10? Well, if you have 10 people that you meet, each of them independently telling you about the accident, then the likelihood that that accident actually happened is now very, very high. In fact, it's so high that it, the likelihood that it did not happen is so low that you can dismiss that likelihood, right? It doesn't even make any sense logically to say, no, it still didn't happen. I'm going to reject all of those independent reports from people that are trustworthy because whatever. You, you shouldn't do that. It's not logical. Human minds do not, you know, deal with day-to-day -day situations in this matter. Okay? This is the meaning of tawatur. Mutawatur basically means first that there are so many independent sources validating the claim that the Holy Prophet said something that it doesn't make any sense to say otherwise. That's one. And two, that there is no interruption in the transmission of the hadith all the way down to us. So it's not like, you know, the hadith wasn't reported for 200 years and then suddenly it appears in a book somewhere. So what happened? Why didn't anyone report it for 200 years? What happened there? Okay, so this is where I'm telling you we have some narrations where the Sunni scholar, the scholar who does not accept the hadith for the same claims to establish the same validity of our belief, might say this hadith is not mutawatir. It's true that this was said, but you know, it's one person who reported it or two people and they didn't know what they were talking about or they made a mistake, okay? So this is possible, this is always possible. In those cases, you know, what we would say is, okay, well, we have to dig into the details to see, is it actually mutawatir or not? Is it considered mutawatir hadith by the scholars of hadith and al rajal or not? Okay, so something to keep in mind. So the opposite of mutawatir, so hadith that is so frequently reported by so many independent sources that it has to be considered true. Okay, the opposite of that is ahad. So they might say this hadith is ahad. Okay, it's, you know, only reported by one or two people here and there, or the chain of transmission is missing in time at some point. Okay, so in the previous lesson, we said that to end the cycle of prophethood, for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to end the cycle of prophethood, so end 
the prophethood of Prophet Muhammad without a successor would go against the purpose of guiding humanity, the wisdom from guiding humanity. Because specifically because of the state of the 23 years during which the Holy Prophet was trying to teach religion. And we give an example. We said, look at something like wudu, something that is supposed to be so neutral and repeated so many times in front of everyone and no one has anything to gain or lose about lying about it or making stuff about it. And yet the Muslims can't agree on exactly how the Holy Prophet performed his wudu, something that he would have done right in front of them again and again for so many years, few times a day. Okay, so how come? So this is the state. If you understand this, then you understand the necessity for having the imama after the Holy Prophet to clearly establish how this religion is supposed to be. And then we said, and then we add to this the argument that Islam is supposed to be eternal and universal. Islam is supposed to touch every aspect of your life. Islam is supposed to give you answers about your entire lifestyle for all of your needs, individually and collectively for society. Well, how is this done? If the only example that I have are the 23 years that are full of difficulties and full of you know, uh, limitations to what the Holy Prophet can show and apply from this religion. So that becomes the second reason why we said the need for imama is necessary. And that's also why the people who continue after the Holy Prophet have to be able to perform the same rules. Therefore, they have to have the same characteristics of infallibility, divine knowledge, and divine appointment. So what is the main argument for divine appointment? The first one comes to us from Surat Al-Ma'idah, the third verse in Surat Al-Ma'idah. It's a long verse. That's why there's three dots at the beginning there. It's, it starts by explaining that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is explaining a few uh, you know, uh, teachings related to eating, what you can eat and what you can't eat. Okay. And then the verse says, today, the faithless, the disbelievers, have despaired of your religion. So do not fear them, but fear me. Today, I have perfected your religion for you, and I have completed my blessings upon you, and I have approved Islam as your religion. Okay. When was this verse revealed? This verse was revealed in the farewell pilgrimage. Hujjat al-Wada'a which was the 10th year after Hijrah. The Holy Prophet announces that he is performing the Hajj. And so everybody who is a Muslim now wants to go to perform the Hajj because the Holy Prophet is going to be in Mecca. You can imagine, you can perform the Hajj with the Holy Prophet. So people came. They came in huge numbers for that time, you know, at the time of the Holy Prophet. This is the 10th year after Hijrah. The Holy Prophet passed away in the beginning, uh, in the year 11. Okay, so this is towards the very end of the life of the Holy Prophet. And the Holy Prophet says, I am going to perform the pilgrimage. And there were already a lot of indications. The Holy Prophet was hinting that he was soon going to depart from this world. Okay, so what happens? So we have to explore, we have to understand what happened in that hijjah, what hijjah al-wada'a, what happened there? When the Holy Prophet went and he said, I'm performing the pilgrimage. So everybody came to perform the pilgrimage. And then we are told this verse was revealed. So when exactly was it revealed in the sequence of events? We have to take the sequence of events from the beginning. So before we talk about 5.3, Surah Al-Ma'idah verse 3, let's talk about Surah Al-Ma'idah 5 verse 67. We are told, right after the Holy Prophet finished performing the Hajj, and as the caravans were starting to get on the move to go back to their lands, to go back to their homes, everybody's going back, so the Hajj has been performed, we are told Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala reveals this verse to the Holy Prophet, 567. He tells him, O Messenger, communicate that which has been sent down to you from your Lord. And if you do not, then you will not have communicated his message. And Allah shall protect you from the people. Indeed, Allah does not guide the, faith, the faithless lot. So, we have the Holy Prophet, having just performed the farewell pilgrimage, having completed almost 23 years of teaching the people about this religion, 
starting to hint that he's about to leave this world. In other words, the Holy Prophet, it's like he, he's taught everything there is to teach about this religion. So anyone would think, you know, that's it. There's nothing else left to teach. And he just showed everybody how to perform the Hajj. There's nothing else left. What, is, what else is there? Is there? And then this verse is revealed. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala telling the Holy Prophet, and this is when the caravan of the Holy Prophet was at a point near Ghadir Khum, a point, a Ghadir, called Ghadir Khum. So a Ghadir is basically a source of water, water coming out of the ground. So they had stopped there, and then this is where that verse was revealed. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala telling the Holy Prophet, O Messenger, communicate that which has been sent down to you from your Lord. Okay, so it's a pretty straightforward tone from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to the Holy Prophet. There's something important. It needs to be communicated to the people. Communicate that which has been sent down to you from your Lord. And if you do not, ah, okay, so there's something going on here where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, it makes Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tell the Holy Prophet, and if you do not communicate this, then you will not have communicated his message. Why would the Holy Prophet not communicate, it, communicate any part of the message? Why would the Holy Prophet hold back? Is there any time when the Holy Prophet held back? No. So why would Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala ask the Holy Prophet to make sure that he delivers this part of the message? What's going on? It's because the Holy Prophet clearly knows that there is a huge concern about this fast teaching that he has to send to, to uh, communicate to the people. In fact, he fears that if he communicates it, they're not going to accept it. So basically, they've accepted everything as part of religion until now. And then this last teaching, the Holy Prophet is concerned and preoccupied. It's almost like he's procrastinating. Like, is this the right time? When, it's when is it going to be the right time? He wants to choose the timing, the circumstances. He wants to make sure to maximize the benefit of the guidance of the people. And he knows that this is not going to be something they're going to accept easily and lightly. He knows there's a huge problem. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala reveals this verse to tell the Prophet, stop worrying, this is the time. This is the time that you are going to communicate that last teaching. And if you do not, then you will not have communicated his message. You will not, if you don't teach this part, if you do not communicate this part, then it's like you never communicated any part of Islam, of teaching Islam to the people. So that's why the verse says, then you will not have communicated his message. The entire message rests on this. And Allah shall protect you from the people. Don't worry. Don't worry that the people are going to accept or reject. And, you know, that's none of your concern. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will deal with the people. Inshallah. Indeed, Allah does not guide the faithless law. Which probably means, most likely, in this verse, if you understand how the Quran talks, the Holy Quran always gives you hints. There will be people who will reject. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala does not guide those who stubbornly are faithless and disbelievers. So what happens? So we are told that in the events of Ghadi al-Khum, that the Holy Prophet had gone. He had announced it. At the beginning of the pilgrimage season, there were about 30, 20 to 30,000 people who were with the Holy Prophet. And as the days went by and they got closer and closer to the days where the Hajj is actually performed, there were in excess of more than 100,000 people performing the Hajj with the Holy Prophet. And then imagine that group of people leaving Mecca, starting to leave Mecca. And then this verse is revealed at the location of Ghadir Khum. And that's when the Holy Prophet, as soon as this is revealed, the Holy Prophet does what? The Holy Prophet tells all of his followers, build me a pulpit, a mambar. And so they took, you know, the saddles of the camels and all the objects that they had, and they put them, piled them up together to create a pulpit for the Holy Prophet to climb on. And then he told the people with him to go and take and get the, caravans that were ahead that had moved too fast to call them back and the holy prophet waited until the caravans who were late got to the same location and then he stood and the holy they spent about five hours that day in that specific location and the holy prophet gave a sermon that was about three hours long he spoke for about three hours in extreme heat gathering that group of tens of thousands of people 
in which he referenced, if you read the full parts of the khutbah that reached us, there are over 100 verses of the Qur'an mentioned in that khutbah. So just so that you can understand what he explained, he summarized all of our religion in there. And he emphasized again and again and again. He referred to some verses of the Qur'an. For instance, verse uh, uh, in Surah Al-Ahzab 33.6, Verse 6, he asks them, because the verse says, the Holy Prophet is more, has more right over the believers than they have over themselves. So he asked them, do I not have more right over you than you have over yourselves? And they said, of course, the Holy Prophet has more right over us than ourselves. Otherwise, if you don't say that, you're not a believer. That's what the Holy Quran had taught them. Then the Holy Prophet raised the arm of Imam Ali salam in front of everyone on that pulpit, and he said, for whomever I am his leader, Ali is his leader. O God, love those who love him and be hostile to those who are hostile to him and make truth follow him wherever he goes. And this, after this, the verse that we referred to previously, 5.3, was revealed. So after this was done, the whole Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala revealed the verse, today the faithless have despaired of your religion. So do not fear them and fear me. Today I have perfected your religion for you, and I have completed my blessing upon you, and I have approved Islam as your religion. Sometimes they say this verse is talking about, you know, Islam being completely revealed, and this was the last teaching, as we said, the beginning of the verse talks about the things that we can eat and the things we can't eat. Okay, what do the things that we can eat have anything to do with the, those who are disbelievers and mushrikeen despairing of religion? Why would they despair? Because now we know what we can eat and what we can't eat? No. It's because something that just happened. And we have to understand that context. There were people who were munafiqeen, hypocrites. There were people who were mushrikeen. Even though some of them had just entered into Islam, others had not. The pagans, those of Quraysh, who were waiting for every opportunity. <clears throat> and now they knew that the Holy Prophet, the rumors started spreading, that the Holy Prophet is saying that he is about to die that he is going to die soon. And this is going to be our opportunity to strike and to regain the power, to take the power back, to get rid of this religion and those people and everything that he had put in place. The moment he goes away, Quraysh can take the power again. And then the Holy Prophet does the one thing that destroys all of those plans, if it were actually followed. And that is, he appointed a successor from Allah. So now, the plan of Quraysh of taking over does not work anymore. Because now there's a clear successor that the Holy Prophet has appointed. So if there's a successor, then they can't come and claim legitimacy to anything because the Holy Prophet has said, if you want to follow my legitimate successor, it's him. And that's why the, whole, the verse says, today the faithless have despaired of your religion. There's no more way to get into this religion and to take it over and to hijack it because now the truth has become clear. So do not fear the disbelievers and the faithless ones. Fear me, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says. And then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala adds that whatever just happened there, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says three things about it. Each one of them is incredibly important. The first one is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, and what just happened, the appointment of Imam Ali as an imam. Allah says about it, Today, today on the day where Imam Ali is appointed, today I have perfected your religion for you. So now religion has become perfect. So it was imperfect before. And I have completed my blessing upon you. The blessing was incomplete until there's an Imam appointed. And I have approved Islam as your religion. So there was no Islam before that point. There were still teachings that are coming down and now we can consider all of this as a religion. And why this importance? So now if we go back to the other verse which says, and if you do not communicate this part, this imam, then you will not have communicated the message. Okay, why? Is imam that important? Yes, imam is that important. Why? Because this is going to be the only guarantee that people cannot come and hijack this religion, let's say like Bani Umayyah did, like Al Abbasiyin did, anyone can come and under the excuse of being 
Islamic leaders, they can take over this religion and this ummah and make it go in any direction they want. The way this religion is going to be protected is to clearly say religion is this one thing. Everything else is a false claim. People are going to make false claims against this religion. So what is going to be equivalent to this whole religion? It's the person who represents this religion. And that's the imam. Without the imam, you have no guarantee of what is Islam and what is not. The moment the Holy Prophet leaves this world, there are people who are going to try to hijack this religion, to take it over and make it say and make it do what they want it to say and they want it to do. And that's why the Holy Prophet himself said about this, the, the completion of my prophethood and the completion of God's religion is the wilayah, is the leadership of Ali after me. He said that. And then after that, the people came, the poets got on the pulpits and they started reciting poetry about how Imam Ali had been appointed, Hassan ibn Thabit and others. And then a lot of the companions, if not, you know, all of the heads, all the, you know, the important ones, influential ones came and they gave their allegiance to Imam Ali as the Imam. Ibn Abbas came, Abu Bakr came, Umar ibn al-Khattab came, and they said the same words. They all repeated similar words. Bakhin, bakhin ya Ali. So congratulations, congratulations, O Ali. You have become my leader and the leader of every believing man and woman. That's how the Imam was greeted. For hours, the allegiance was taken for the Imam in there. And then the verse says, and if you do not, if you do not communicate this part, then you will not have communicated his message. So this is where it becomes clear the importance of this appointment. This appointment is equivalent to the entire mission of the Holy Prophet. Because without this appointment, the entire mission of the Holy Prophet can disappear overnight because someone can hijack this whole religion. Now, if we go to what happened right away, there are so many examples of you know, the, the types of uh, events that occurred right after and what was said right after. And you know, obviously we don't have time to go uh, over, over the details. So if you, you go for instance to, to many, if, if, uh, and this is going to answer some of the questions that uh, are, are being posted on, on, the, on the chat, the only way to validate all of this is through Ilm al-Hadith. That's exactly what we're saying. You have to go back to the works and see which narrations are considered authentic. None of the narrations that we have today are taken from Shiri sources. These are from the most reliable, authentic Sunni sources. Everybody, no one says this did not happen. Everybody agrees, as we said at the beginning, that this happened in the way we're saying. Those who say it happened in another way, they are the minority. They are, you know, the ones who are making a lot of noise on the channels and on YouTube. And these are not the big scholars. If you go back to the works of theology and history, everybody agrees that this happened. But they say when, Imam, when the Holy Prophet said, Imam Ali is the wali, he meant that he is my friend. So imagine the context where the Holy Prophet spends this much time and with these verses of the Quran, if you take it piece by piece, you, yeah, you can maybe make a, a different claim and interpret differently. If you put it all together like I just did for you, this is when you see that this does not hold. There's only one possible interpretation to all of this. Okay? And so we are told, if you go back to, for instance, Al-Hamwini, this is a huge work, Fara'id al-Sumtayn, he talks about it, he says, Abu Bakr and Umar stood up and asked the Holy Prophet. They said, O Prophet of God, are these verses particular to Imam Ali, to Ali? Are they only talking about Ali, this verse, 567? And he said, yes, to him and to my inheritors and successors until the day of judgment. They said, O Prophet of God, clarify them to us. He said, Ali is my brother, my wazir, my inheritor, my successor, and the Khalifa of my ummah, over, over my ummah, and the leader of every believing man and woman after me. Then my son, Al-Hasan, then my son Al-Hussein, then nine from the progeny of my son Al-Hussein, one following the other. The Quran is with them and they are with the Quran. They do not leave it and it does not leave them until they come to me at the pond, which is Hawd al-Kawthar, at the Hawth. Okay, this is an example of the narrations. If you want to dig in the books and find the authentic narrations in the books of the Sunni scholars. Another example, 
26, 214. So this is chapter Al-Shu'ara, Surah Al-Shu'ara, Ayah 214. What do we have in there? The event of Ghadir Khum was the official appointment of Imam Ali السلام, to make it clear and public and official to everyone. This is the end of the prophethood of the Holy Prophet. There is no more time left. The Holy Prophet needs to make sure that this is done in the most public way so that he reaches the most people. It does not mean that there were no other appointments of Imam Ali In fact, if you follow the life of the Holy Prophet Imam Ali, you see so many examples and so many instances where the Holy Prophet was making it clear who was his successor and who was going to be the person who has to carry on with his mission. And this happened not only at the end, towards the end of the prophethood of the Holy Prophet, before his demise. This did happen in this very open way, very official way to everyone. But it was happening right from the beginning of the prophetic mission. Verse uh, 26 to 14, this was revealed at the beginning, very early in the mission of the Holy Prophet. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala was now telling the Holy Prophet, your mission has been, had been secret until now. Now you are going to slowly start expanding, so you're only going to invite the heads of Quraysh and the family members of Bani Hashim. And you're going to invite them and call them to Islam. So Islam was secret before that. This is the first official call to Islam beyond the secret call. So the Holy Prophet, because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala told him, warn the nearest of your kinsfolk, your relatives, your family members. Warn the nearest ones. So those who are closest to you, call them to Islam. So here, the Holy Prophet prepared food for them. I'm not going to go through the, the, the story. We don't have time. And... At the bottom line, the Holy Prophet said every time, and he, this happened more than once because they would mock him and leave. And he would say, this is my call to you, and he would explain religion. And then he says, who among you is going to support me in my mission? And who, therefore, is going to become my brother, my successor, and my Khalifa among you? When was this? This is early, early days in Islam. This is not near the Hajjat al-Wada'ah. This is not when the Holy Prophet was about to pass away. This is early in Islam. And three times Imam Ali السلام, got up and he said, and he's, he's very young at that time. And Imam Ali السلام, would stand and say, I will do it. I will be that person supporting you. And the Holy Prophet would tell him, sit down. Um, he's, he's giving a chance to everybody else, but no one would get up. This was very early days, as we said. And so the Holy Prophet told him, stand ya Ali. And then he told him, you are going to be my brother and my successor and the Khalifa after me. And this is very well known. Go to any book of history and you will see this. So there's a consensus in all the historians that everybody stayed quiet except Imam Ali السلام, and after the third time, the Holy Prophet accepted this. Surah An-Nisa 4.59, verse 59. O you who have faith, obey Allah and obey the Messenger and those vested with authority among you. Those given the authority among you. When was this verse revealed? Seems general, okay? We can go through all sorts of uh, details here. I'm going to skip them. As I said, we don't have time. The Jabir ibn Abdullah al-Ansari came to the Holy Prophet, one of the main, you know, well-known companions. And he asked the Holy Prophet, who are those vested, in uh, vested with authority? The verse just seems to say, obey Allah, obey the messenger, and obey those those who have given, who have been given the authority among you. So Jabir ibn Abdullah has the Prophet. Who are those people? Is it just anyone? Is it the political leaders? Who is it? The Holy Prophet tells him, they are my Khulafa Jabir and the Imams of the Muslims after me. The first among them is Ali, son of Abi Talib. Then Al-Hasan, then Al-Hussein, then Ali, son of Hussein, then Muhammad, son of Ali, who is known in the Torah as Al-Baqir. You shall meet him, O Jabir. And Jabir ibn Abdullah, he lived all the way to the time of Imam al-Baqir You shall meet him, Jabir. So when you do, salute him for me. Then As-Sadiq Ja'far, son of Muhammad. Then Musa, son of Ja'far. 
then Ali son of Musa, then Muhammad son of Ali, then Ali son of Muhammad, then Al-Hasan son of Ali, then the one carrying my name and my nickname, God's argument on his earth, and the one remaining among his servants, the son of Al-Hasan, who is the son of Ali. So this is Imam al-Mahdi, this is in Yanabi al-Mawadda, third volume of Al-Qamdusi, Al-Qamdusi. And Jabir did stay, as I wrote in there, alive until the time of Imam al-Baqir This is an example. Other examples related to this specific verse. Abu Basir says, one of the companions of Imam al-Sadiq he reports to us that he asked Imam al-Sadiq about God's words, obey Allah and obey the messenger and those vested with authority among you. And the Imam said, it was revealed for Ali, son of Abi Talib, al-Hasan and al-Hussein, peace upon them. So, Imam, uh, so Abu Basir says, so I told him, people say, why did he, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, not name Ali and his household in God's book? So it's, uh, he's asking a question that we still hear today. So, you know, if it's true, then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala should have just named Imam Ali and Imam Hassan, Imam Hussein and the other Imams in the book. But since he didn't, then we don't need to follow them. And so Imam al-Sadiq replied, Tell them that the Prophet received the prayer verses without any mention therein of the number of prostrations, raka'at, be they four or three. It was the Prophet who explained it to them. That is also the case when the verses related to the pilgrimage or the zakat were revealed. And so when the verse, obey Allah and obey the messenger and those vested with the authority among you was revealed, the Prophet said, he to whom I am the leader, Ali is his leader. And he said, my will to you is that you hold on to the book of Allah and the members of my household. For I have asked from my God, exalted is he, not to separate them, the Imams from the holy book, until he lets them reach me at Hawl al-Kawta. And he has granted it to me. And he said, the Holy Prophet, do not instruct them, for they are more knowledgeable than you. They shall never lead you out of a guidance, nor thy sh the uh, shall they ever lead you into a misguidance. And this is where you see the asma. This is where you see the divine knowledge that we are talking about. Clearly established here. If someone is equal to the Quran, when the Prophet says, those two will never separate until they come you on Al-Qiyamah. That tells you that whatever you believe in terms of the infallibility and guidance of the Quran, you have to believe in them. When he tells you they will never lead you astray, they will never bring you into a misguidance. How can you say that about anyone who is not, who is not infallible, who may make a mistake? How can the Prophet give you that guarantee? Uh, other examples. Hadith al-Thaqalain. Hadith al-Thaqalain where the Holy Prophet says, I am leaving the two weighty things among you, two important things, two huge things among you, the book of Allah and the members of my household. Those are the two things I leave. So, and they shall never leave each other until they reach me at the basin. Those two stay together, which by the way between us is a proof of the existence of Imam al-Mahdi. It means that the book cannot exist without an Imam. And the Imams do not exist without the Quran. Those two are going to stay together until the end of times. Okay? And this is Hadith Mutawatar, Hadith Thaqalain, well known. Volumes are written about this hadith, available in the Sahah, available in, you know, Musnad Ahmad, Hakim al-Nishaburi, Mustadrak and Nasai, all the big scholars report this, all of them say that it's an authentic hadith, okay? Another hadith, hadith al-Safina, the Holy Prophet says, the parable or the example of the members of my household among you is that of the Ark of Noah. Whoever embarks on it will be rescued. And whoever stays behind will drown. So I think this is clear to anyone who wants to be objective and not try to interpret the hadith in this direction or that direction, which is kind of far-fetched and, you know, a stretch. I think it's very clear. Any good Muslim who hears these words from the Holy Prophet in an unbiased, objective way should know what these words mean. Okay? I think uh, I'll stop here. It's almost prayer time. There are dozens upon dozens of other narrations that we could use. Uh, we're not going to go into all of this. And inshallah, with this, we have made it clear that first of all, in order for someone to be an imam, they have to meet certain criteria. And one of that criteria has to be appointment from Allah directly as an imam. That needs to be established. Two, 
that by now we have established that that appointment did occur, it did happen. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala did appoint Imam Ali alayhi salam as an Imam. And with that, it should be sufficient. Just that becomes enough because then all I need is Imam Ali alayhi salam to tell me who's the Imam after him. And I need, and that will tell me who the Imam is. I don't necessarily need a hadith from the Holy Prophet. With that said, we still proved with some hadith from the Holy Prophet that he did say who the Imams were before they were born, <laughs> for some of them centuries before they were born, and clearly establishing their criteria, clearly establishing uh, the conditions of who they are, the progeny of Imam Hussain how many of them they are, some of their nicknames, and so on and so forth. So with that, it's enough. And then when we combine with the Hajjiyya, with the religious authority of the Imams themselves, then we have the, for every Imam, how his Imamah was established by the Imams before him, by his father, in the case of the Imams. So inshallah, all of this is clear. The next time we meet, inshallah, we will establish the infallibility and the divine knowledge of the Imams. And then we will be done with the kind of more theoretical aspect of Imamah. And we will have one more lecture, you know, planned for Imamah that we will get into, inshallah, at that time. Keep me in your prayers. See you soon, inshallah. Wa sallallahu ala Sayyidina Muhammadin wa ala alihi tayyibin al-tahirin.